There's a valley in Spain called Harama It's a place that we all know so well It was there that we fought against the fascists We saw a peaceful valley turn to hell Hello comrades and welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Spectre. I'm delighted today to be joined by Mike Arnott from the International Brigade Memorial Trust. Michael, it's great to have you here. Cheers, good to be here. Perfect, so just a wee introduction from yourself then, Mike. Uh, you know, who you are, your affiliations and everything else in between. Right, well, at the moment I've got plenty hats. I'm currently the president of the STUC, uh, which started in April and will run till next April. Uh, for the last 30 years, I've been secretary of Dundee Trade Union Council. In a previous life, I was the chair of the Scottish Committee of the YCL in the mid-1980s. Uh, but my context here is that I'm the Scotland secretary of the International Brigade Memorial Trust, which uh, perpetuates uh, and educates uh, around the uh, legacy of those who went to fight in Spain. Brilliant. Cheers for that. So I guess just to kick us off then when talking about the International Brigade, I guess there's no better place than to start than the actual Spanish Civil War itself and how it came about. So just look to see if you can give us a, a brief rundown of you know what initiated the, the Spanish Civil War into what we know it, uh, is now throughout history. Right. Well, basically, Spain was a monarchy with a very weak uh, parliament uh, called the Cortes. It had lost its empire in much of its empire in the Spanish-American War in the 1890s. And in, in 1921, uh, there was a massive military defeat for it uh, against the uh, Berber armies of Morocco. The Spanish garrison was forced to retreat in disarray, and it was a major disgrace. It was probably the greatest defeat uh, for many years by a major European colonial power by the indigenous forces. In September 1923, they were going to publish the report of what happened uh, and that was going to directly implicate uh, King Alfonso XIII, who was the monarch in Spain, of that disastrous outcome. Before that could happen, General Miguel Primo de Rivera uh, organised a military coup d'etat that uh, overthrew the parliamentary government, and that was with Alfonso's support. And Primo de Rivera established... A military dictatorship. If we go forward, uh, we go through to the 1930s. Uh, 1930, uh, the Spanish economy tied into the depression around the world uh, following the, the collapse of the US stock market of Wall Street. The Spanish economy is re reeling and Alfonso forces Primo de Rivera's resignation. And he's actually in such a physical, physically broken state that two months after he's uh, he's forced to resign, Primo de Rivera actually dies. 
Republican sentiment has grown because of the monarch's association with the dictatorship, which has become unpopular and there have been excesses. And so Republicans and former liberal monarchists, Catalan politicians meet. And in August 1930, they actually overthrow the king. And then in the 31 elections, the Republican and Socialist candidates triumph overwhelmingly in the the municipal elections. Two years after that, 33, de Rivera's son, José Antonio, forms the Falange, uh, the far-right nationalist political group, uh, and commits themselves to overthrowing the Republican government. And uh, they're largely inspired by Mussolini, that kind of politics. Then in 1936, we have the re-election of the Popular Front government, the broad left-wing coalition uh, headed by Manuel Azania, who in the majority of seats in the Cortes, they have a massive program of reform. They want to reform education, basically expand schools in ordinary working class areas, modernize the education system and take it out of the hands of the Catholic Church, who basically control education in Spain. They have a massive program for the emancipation of women. Women have really had a really low uh, status in Spain and have had virtually no freedoms whatsoever. So there's a massive campaign for emancipation and advancing the role of women in society. And the third great prong of that is land reform. Spain is probably the most backward country in Europe uh, at the time. Uh, It's largely rural, it's largely peasant. Uh, The peasantry own virtually none of the land. Uh, And so there's massive uh, reaction against the the three forces. The landowners are in opposition, the right wing are in opposition, the army part of that, uh, and the Catholic Church, as well as I said, are in opposition. So there's a massive confrontation coming up. What basically happens is that the people are eager for this to happen and taking strike action, industrial action, there are general and partial strikes across the country. But also there's a reaction which happened in Spain. It happened uh, in previous uh, popular uprisings where they burned churches, They attack the church uh, and various things like that. There's also civil unrest. There's uh, killings on the street. There's tit-for-tat assassinations right across the country, left killing right, right killing left on the streets. But then in in July 1917, spurred on by the assassination of one of the leaders of the extreme right, Jose Calvo Sorelo, uh, Sotelo by by the government, by uh, Popular Front uh, security forces. Uh, the military make its move on the 17th of July. They've been planning a military coup for, for a long time, for months, uh, possibly even longer. 
the coup begins in Spanish Morocco, and that's Franco. Franco has been sent to Morocco to get him out of the way because he was very unpopular and was expected to be involved in this kind of stuff uh, by the popular front forces. So he'd been sent to Morocco, but then he he declares that a rebellion has begun. So there is an uprising, the military uprise, uh, they take to the streets, but they're defeated in most places. There are places in Granada, around Seville, towards the south of Madrid, uh, down towards the area across from Morocco, uh, across uh, Gibraltar. Uh, the Spanish military are partially successful in those areas, so they have a number of footholds. They're very successful in the northwest of the country, uh, Salamanca, right the way up to the Basque country. But it was a military coup that they had expected to succeed. What they didn't expect were the people, the militias coming out onto the streets, trade union militias, anarchist militias, socialist militias, communist militias, uh, getting access uh, to guns uh, The where they took over nationalist uh, garrisons and barracks and where they were in the, in the hands of the Popular Front, the Popular Front government and aligned military gave workers weapons. So they took to the streets and basically everywhere else, uh, they, they defeated the coup. So the coup initially was on very shaky grounds. What happened, though, was that there was consolidation Franco went to the Italians, went to Hitler, and from the Italians he got the promise of aeroplanes, and planes flew Franco's army of the army of Africa over from Morocco to that part of the south of uh, Spain that they controlled, and this was a trained military force, uh, Spanish veterans, colonial troops. Uh, the Moorish uh, regulares who were feared throughout the war eventually uh, because of uh, their abilities. And they began a drive up through through Spain that uh, was only really stopped at the, at the gates of Madrid in November 36. So that's really the genesis of what we call the Spanish Civil War. That was the forces behind it. That's what started it. Uh, that's how it began. And that was the initial elements of it. Uh, the, the first big confrontation was uh, at the, 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 the attempt by the fascists to march into Madrid in November 1936 after having marched up from the south of Spain one thing that was notable about that was the fact that as towns and cities were taken by the fascist forces, they carried out massive uh, bloodbath of murders, assassinations. A place called Badajoz is famous for that early period of the war. Uh, anybody who'd been taken up arms against them, anybody who was identified as a left, as an intellectual, as a trade unionist, 
uh, were rounded up into the, the, the bull ring at Badajoz and they were machine gunned in their hundreds. And that was, again, something that was to carry on throughout the war. The argument is that Franco could probably have been a lot more rapid in his military advance, certainly in the early part of the war, uh, had it not been for this, basically his desire to clean up the areas that he captured before then moving on. Uh, so it was uh, basically a moving pogrom, uh, a moving campaign of death and assassination and murder as his forces progressed uh, through Spain. Yeah, perfect. Uh, I don't think I could have said it better myself, Mike, spot on. Uh, I think the history and you know the background to the, the beginning of the Spanish Civil War is something that's not really looked on with uh, spotlight, uh, certainly in a... A broad kind of consensus, you know. Don't think MD in, in school, certainly during my time, was ever taught about the the Spanish Civil War or, or Spain's role during the the Second World War. So it really is a, a really interesting history, and it becomes even more interesting when the International Brigades come into effect. And certainly learning about the International Brigade, not just here in Britain, from the the different columns that came from literally around the world. It's uh, kind of awe inspiring to as you mentioned you know these these working people coming up against a trained military force that was uh, no, notably vicious and un, unrelenting and to do what they've done was was amazing so it's just to see if you can give us uh, now an insight into the actual international brigades you know uh, and especially here in scotland for the the scottish volunteers how they uh, first get involved making their way to Spain to, to fight for the Republic and, you know, certainly the impact that they've they've made in the world? Yeah, uh, the International Brigades, the idea of them came up through the Comintern. The Comintern is the international organisation of communist parties around the world, which was based in Moscow. That's where the leadership and the administration of the Comintern was. So international communist parties meeting through the Comintern decided to start developing international brigades. And the first of them started arriving in Spain in October, the middle of October 1936. The two big initial groups were the French and the Germans uh, and the two first international brigades were the Teilmann Battalion of the Germans and the Marseillaise uh, Battalion of the French. Uh, the French were obviously next door uh, and they had a, a popular front government in, in France at the time. And so there were people willing to, to cross over and join in what had happened in Spain. The German situation was that many of them uh, were in exile around Europe in various places, in exile from Hitler. Uh, there are some that are reported to have broken out of concentration camps in Germany so that they could come to Spain and fight, uh, which is interesting. Uh, uh, they were named after Ernst Thälmann who was the leader of the Communist Party in Germany, who'd been imprisoned by the Nazis in uh, 1933. 
He was his power base was Hamburg. He was born in Hamburg, lived in Hamburg. But uh, once Hitler came to power in '33, one of the first things he did was to uh, arrest the, the communist leaders, and Tailman was one of the first uh, taken into into prison and uh, kept in a concentration camp. And he was eventually killed by the Nazis in a concentration camp. So many Germans, many French people, other people were starting to to arrive in dribs and drabs. Uh, the first Scot probably arrived around October, November. Uh, but the first job of the international brigades was the defence of Madrid. They'd been training at Albacete, which is where the British battalion uh, was founded and where they were based. But the Germans, French and those that had arrived uh, in October and throughout October were basically rushed to the defence of Madrid on the 6th of November when Franco's army appeared on the outskirts of Madrid. And basically the international brigades fought this army to a standstill. Uh, they held Madrid, and Madrid was to hold for the next 28 months, effectively. They they carried on shelling from a distance. Uh, they carried on flying over and dropping bombs. But due to the heroic defence uh, of which the international brigades played a major part in the second week of November 1936, uh Madrid didn't fall. Uh, no Passaran was the was the rallying cry. That was actually adapted from the French call, which they'd inaugurated at Verdun in the First World War. But obviously that was in French, and we remember the Spanish no Passaran. And that's where it come from, that they shall not pass. And you were, you were starting to get British battalion people over now. Well, not British battalion, but Brits fighting with the uh, the French or the Germans. It was an interesting case of David McKenzie. David McKenzie was a student at Edinburgh University and went over very early in these early days and was involved in the fight for Madrid. His father was a rear admiral and he'd had massive political, obviously political fallout because he was in the Communist Party and fell out with his father. He turned up, was reported in the Daily Worker as having been killed. Uh, and his mother got very frantic about this and sent out to the Scottish Ambulance Service, who'd been in Spain since uh, since September. They left very early and asked them to hunt for her son, David. David had been wounded, uh, and he came back. Well, he was he was he was overheard in a hotel in in Madrid speaking to foreign correspondents, uh, and after that, he spoke to somebody who'd been. Uh, I think he was with the Germans, and this guy was Esmond Romilly, who was Churchill's nephew, was with the French, or the other way round, whichever it was. And one of them said to the other, well, we thought of coming over to to 
to fight with, ask if we could fight with you guys because uh, the Germans are fucking horrendous to fight for. And uh, the, the other guy was thinking, well, we were actually thinking of coming to ask to fight with the Thalmans because we found the French uh, bloody awful to fight for. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the fight around University City, which is where that front line was, where that defence stood, was was incredible. Uh, it, it was the first time that many of them had been in battle. Uh, Sam Lesser, who was a London archaeology student, also a Communist Party member, he actually went on to become the Daily Worker's representative in Spain and was actually still the Daily Worker's uh, or the Morning Star representative who happened to be in Santiago in Chile on the day of the military coup in Chile in 1973. Sam was there and Sam went back to the university in the 80s, you know, the 50th anniversary stuff uh, after Franco's death. Uh, and he went into the university. They invited him in for a meeting. And what Sam had written about in University City was how they were in the library block and they'd taken all these bloody great volumes out of off the shelves and stacked them up in the windows as some kind of protection. And they, the, the students actually showed him, brought out to him, volumes that had come from that time that still had the bullets embedded in them that, that they'd used to try and protect themselves. So that was uh, that was November, the battle for Madrid. And from then on, the front line around Madrid, basically, as I said, stabilized. The fascists never got actually into Madrid uh, for another 28 months. The battle then developed, and all this time internationals were arriving. The British battalion came up to strength between Christmas and New Year at Albacete, Christmas, New Year, 1936, uh, just after Christmas. They formed the British battalion of about 600. They then went into action for the first time at Harama, which was February, uh, the fascists had moved around Madrid and were trying to break the road between Madrid and Valencia. And the British, the Americans, the, the again, the French, the Germans, but others, the Bulgarians, the Dimitrov Battalion, uh, were sent uh, at great speed to try and fill this gap to stop the breaking of the uh, Madrid-Valencia road. They went into battle on the 12th of February, 1937. That was the first engagement of the uh, of the British battalion. The 12th, 13th and 14th was absolutely horrendous. They'd moved up from Albacete, they were taken to Shinshon, and then they were driven up by lorries and dumped a few hundred yards from the, the line. They were told to approach the uh, Harama River, uh, which when they got up to this high ground, they could see it in the distance. What they didn't know was the fascists had crossed the bridges over the Harama River the night before and were, uh, were advancing towards them. So they went down to take their positions at the river and some of them described hearing birds whispering past them. These were actually bullets. They were under attack. 
and they were in open country. They were in the flat river plain heading towards the river to take up defensive positions. They were then rapidly had to return up the up the slope, up the this escarpment to take up positions, defendable positions at their section of the battlefront at Harama. And that was on the 12th of February. The, the 12th was incredibly bloody. Uh, the fascists, and it was the Moorish regulares, these regular troops uh, who they were up against, advanced towards them. They were trying to take up defensive positions. One of their four companies, number two company, was the machine gun company. They'd recently switched over from French machine guns to Maxims, and they didn't have the ammunition. They discovered when they got into position, they didn't have the ammunition. They were actually individually putting bullets into the empty machine gun belts to desperately try and to get into a position, because without the machine guns, they would uh, the, the, there was no chance for them. Eventually, as the Moorish troops advanced up and then down the other side of what was called Suicide Hill towards them, they got the ammunition and they opened up on the Moorish regulares and decimated them. So that was the first day. The second day, the 13th, was even worse. Uh, the Spanish, uh, the, the fascists enfiladed them, got round the outside uh, they got up into the machine gun company and virtually the entire machine gun company was captured. And that's when you see the famous picture of them all on the back of an open backed lorry, uh, with a photograph of them all standing there. Uh, Jimmy Maley, Tommy Bloomfield from Kakadi, uh, a whole range of them. Jimmy Rutherford, the YCL member who was captured, went back and was shot a second time when he went to Spain. So they were they were all captured, taken away. That's when what happened was called the Great Rally. Frank Ryan and uh, Jock Cunningham, uh, Jock, Glaswegian born, uh, Jock and Ryan rallied the troops. They actually sent people around to look in nooks and crannies. They found folk hiding. They said, come on, lads, back to the front. They rallied them because the fascists had taken the front line effectively and were within 50 yards of taking the road. They rallied them. They marched back to the front, singing the Internationale. The fascists thought this was fresh troops. Uh, and they were eventually driven off, off the front line, back down to their former position. So this, what was called the Great Rally, saved the day at Harama. But at the end of the three days, 12th, 13th and 14th, out of the between five and 600 of the British battalion that turned up at Harama on the front line, there was, uh, there was only about 150 of them left fighting. The rest had either been killed, wounded or captured. I mean, there were five from Dundee killed at Harama. Uh, 39 Scots in all uh, were killed at Harama. Many, many more wounded. But... What that did was it stabilised the front line at Harama again for uh, a couple of years. Harama, as with the the area of Madrid where Franco's army had initially advanced, that line was held and the battle moved elsewhere. For the British, it moved 
in July to a place called uh, Brunetti. Brunetti was an was an was meant to be an uh, an offensive movement by the Republican Army. Uh, start of July, uh, the British battalion there were about four of them, four hundred now uh, back fighting uh, because numbers had been built up again. They were on this higher ground. They marched down basically onto this plain to take the town of Brunetti. Number of other smaller towns around it. Villanueva de la Cañada was one of them, and they basically got caught up. They couldn't dislodge the fascists from these uh, these towns, and they couldn't advance beyond it and leave these pockets of fascist troops uh, behind their lines. So they basically had to try and clear each town and village as they came up to it. The temperature at the time was incredible, Many of them had never faced uh, temperatures like that. They were without proper supplies. Water and food was very infrequent. They made great gains. Uh, they did well initially. But the other thing was that the, the fascists responded very quickly. Uh, they brought up uh, forces and effectively superior forces once they'd identified that this is where the Republicans were trying to break through, they brought up uh, big big reserves. They were using planes, they were using tanks. And basically, Brunetti as a breakthrough didn't happen uh, and was very, very costly. I said uh, 400-odd of the British battalion were, were in uh, involved in the Battle of Brunetti. I think there were 42 left at the end of the battle who hadn't been killed, wounded or captured. And of course, many of them were, were, were wounded. Uh, it, was, it was a bloodbath. It wasn't pleasant. Uh, but again, the British battalion were withdrawn from the line. Uh, they were given time to recoup. The numbers were built up again uh, as, they, as more folk arrived. And they were in, the next went into battle at Teruel. Teruel is way to the north. Uh, and they found themselves attacking the town of Teruel in December in one of the worst winters that Spain had encountered for about 50 years. But they succeeded. They took it uh, and held, held Teruel, tried to hold on Teruel. But in January again, Massive uh, reinforcement, counteroffensive by the by the fascists drove them out, and what effectively then happened after Teruel, from the start of thirty seven right the way through, uh, sorry thirty eight right the way through thirty eight uh, was was what was called the Aragon retreats. Uh, they were almost in constant retreat. There are famous places like Gandesa, like Caspe, where they stood and fought to allow the Republican army to retreat. But they were basically on the run uh, for, for the next few months. One of the great disasters was uh, Calasieti. Calasieti was on the 31st of March, uh, 38. The British battalion were on the march. And they saw 
tanks coming towards them, which they mistook as their own tanks. They weren't. They were Italian tanks. And basically didn't realize this until too late. Uh, the Italians opened fire on them. There were troops behind them who joined in. And basically the British battalion scattered, but not before they'd lost uh, a number of dead and over 100 captured, uh, which was a large proportion of their of their number. But again, they carried on this sporadic, uh, improvised uh, retreat until they got to the River Ebro in uh, June and blew the bridges. And because they blew the bridges, the, the fascists couldn't chase them anymore. So they were able to reconsolidate at uh, along the line of the River Ebro. And in July, we had what was effectively the biggest battle, certainly the biggest Republican engagement of the war, when the Republicans decided to cross back over in an offensive over the Ebro and particularly bloody encounters. Uh, Gandesa again was a was a town which they'd held previously before retreating over the Ebro. That was their target again for taking, and it was uh, particularly bloody. They were then unsuccessful. They were driven back. And then the battle moved to the Sierra Pandols up to the mountains. And it was there where, again, more bloody fighting. Uh, they were due to withdraw from the front. They'd withdrawn from the front, but then they were sent back. Uh, they were asked if they would go back, and they agreed to fill a gap that had appeared in the line. And again, I think they lost hundreds, uh, sorry, dozens, maybe a hundred, in that brief spell, two or three days. What had been happening politically on the scene was that the nationalists saw that they were they were winning. The Republicans feared that this was the last throw of the dice. And when uh, the Ebro battle failed, they basically tried to throw themselves on to the the mercy of the great democracies, uh, Britain, France, and uh, the others, to say that, okay, what was offered months before was that all the internationals on both sides uh, should, uh, should be withdrawn. And uh, obviously both sides refused at that time. The British battalion were withdrawn from the front in September 1938. Uh, they went back to base. Uh, there was a final moving parade through Barcelona in October, uh, which uh, Passionaria gave her famous speech, uh, thanking the international brigades for their contribution uh, and telling the people of Spain to always remember the job done by the international brigades. And then on the 7th of December, they, well, they, they were withdrawn. They left by train through France, uh, arrived at the Channel, went over the Channel, and arrived back at Victoria Station 
on the 7th of December uh, 1938. They then had a huge rally there. Uh, Atlee spoke, a number of others spoke, the brigaders spoke. We're hoping to actually circulate the film of that, which is in the British Film Institute, and organise a number of events, certainly around the UK, around between the 7th and 12th of December. Uh, we're having one in Dundee on the 12th of December. We'll be having a rally in the city square, which is where the returning brigaders on the 12th of December were welcomed back to the city. Uh, and then at the DCA, we're hoping to show this archive film from the return uh, to Victoria Station that happened. So they came back, uh, obviously leaving many comrades still buried in Spanish soil. A number of them were still in prisons. A number of them were still in hospital in Spain. Uh, I think the last one got back to the UK uh, in February '39. But, of course, uh, for the Spanish people, in February 39, Barcelona fell. And on the 28th of March 39, uh, 200,000 fascist troops marched into Madrid. And the, that left Spain in the hands of the fascists. And you had the Franco dictatorship, which went right the way up until 1975. And we're still paying for that. The, the Spanish people are still paying for that. There are families who don't know where their relatives are buried. There are attempts to pass legislation to, or the legislation is being passed to allow uh, that kind of recovery of remains to be done. Uh, but there are several questions to be raised about how that's being done and uh, Obviously, we know that the PP party and the Vox fascist party are, are still there in Spanish politics and got very close to winning a general election uh, quite recently. And the whole thing about what's now called democratic and historical memory in Spain uh, makes it very difficult for them still, remarkably, after a so-called return to democracy over 40 years ago. There's still very much the the history of the, the victors and the history of the losers. And uh, we go out there every February to commemorations around the Battle of Harama. And we see... Massive memorials in Madrid that were set up to bear the names of those assassinated, civilians assassinated during the dictatorship that the the last PP government instructed all the name plaques to be taken down. And so you just have this huge uh, concrete and steel structure with uh, no names on it because the thousands of names were instructed to be taken down by the government. You had uh, the PP mayor of Madrid a number of years ago trying to remove the memorial to the international brigades uh, from University City in Madrid. And 
Vox said that if they got into coalition at the recent uh, election with PP, uh, they would demand that the memorials in the Fuencaral Cemetery to the International Brigades were removed. Uh, so very sad for them. Uh, as I say, we still have our commemorations every year. We remember with pride the brigaders uh, from from our countries that went to Spain. Uh, but in Spain itself, it's still an unresolved issue. The history is still contested. Uh, and the lessons of the evils of fascism have not been learned. Yes, spot on, Mike. That's an excellent rundown. You know, I think the, the International Brigade, we could probably dedicate a, a full episode or a couple episodes just to the amount and the history of each each brigade and how they managed to travel to to Spain. Obviously, I think in, in Britain, uh, like you said, some, some people went there independently very early on. Uh, a lot of the time during the, the British Battalion's time where official channels sort of being operated uh, covertly by the Communist Party and that and, and getting people over there. And as you mentioned, uh, obviously, uh, Willie Maley's dad, Jim, being, a, being an international brigader, uh, certainly having uh, read uh, the book he wrote uh, along with a few other contributors. Our father's fought Franco really does go deep into how people got involved, uh, as well as explaining some of the domestic situation here, which we'll obviously get on to talk about in a wee bit. But yep. the, the international brigades themselves, you know, it's it really is a not a forgotten history. I think from the commemoration that myself and you were at on uh, Saturday, it shows that our our culture is still being alive by us commemorating, you know, the the bravery of you know these men and women who who went and fought in Spain and, and done so much, but. Uh, it's really not known uh, in the mainstream about it. You know, if you were to say to somebody with the international brigades, where they'd kind of look at you funny because it's it's not something like I said that's ever really taught in schools. Uh, its significance uh, is certainly downplayed uh, in terms of the the fighters' roles and uh, in the Second World War. So I thought it was a really excellent passage you've given us there on the, the international brigades and whilst the international brigades were were fighting uh, in Spain and even prior. Prior to the conflict, we also saw John uh, Franco's rise and uh, in, in the coup. The British government's inaction, along with countless other governments throughout the world, their inaction to uh, condemn uh, what was happening in Spain uh, with the like of Franco and his uh, fascist thugs and uh, the countless massacres they were uh, compiling during their rise. So, just to see if you can give us a uh, a very brief sort of overview of you know what the British government weren't doing and the implications that then laid on the Republican government in Spain and certainly attributing to the atrocities committed by Franco. The British government basically still saw the Spanish Civil War as an issue it didn't want to get involved with, but also saw it as another branch of its policy of appeasement towards the fascist forces, towards uh, Germany and Italy. This led to the British and the French doing nothing uh, when Germany reclaimed uh, the Sudetenland, when they we saw uh, the disgrace of the Munich Agreement when they basically handed over Czechoslovakia uh, to the Nazis. And Spain was another element of that. 
Britain's response was to drive for what was called a non-intervention pact and forced France and basically cajoled as many countries as it could uh, to sign up to a non-intervention pact. Ironically, on the one side, Italy and Germany signed the non-intervention pact. Also, the Soviet Union signed the non-intervention pact. And basically, there was an international policing uh, situation which not only prevented the Spanish Republic from buying legitimately its own arms to defend itself as a democracy, uh, Britain and France basically closed that down. They prevented Spanish, the Spanish government, legitimate Spanish government, buying any sort of uh, weaponry. The only source of weaponry came from the Soviets and Mexico, whereas, and a lot of that was shut down over land when France closed the border. People fleeing over the border in the, at the end of 39 reported seeing trains, trainloads of planes and other war material at the goods yards on the French side of the border that had been stopped from crossing over. The ironic thing as well was that Italy certainly was given a role in enforcing non-intervention. Uh, this was stopping uh, anybody from sending in supplies to either side. Uh, humanitarian aid was allowed, which is why boatloads of tatties from Montrose uh, went to the Republican side, uh, some allegedly uh, having armaments buried in amongst the tatties. Uh, Obviously, there were the, the 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 ships full of aid that was sent over uh, from Britain. I mean, the aid Spain movement was massive. It was the greatest uh, example of its kind in this country of people from across the social spectrum raising boatloads and boatloads of humanitarian aid uh, to send to Spain. I mean, they were having whist drives in the posh streets of Edinburgh and women were pushing prams around the mining villages in Fife and Lanarkshire, collecting what they could to send to Spain. Uh, it's one of the great remarkable and wonderful elements of, uh, of the Civil War. Uh, but basically, it made it very difficult. And the irony of was saying about Italy being given patrolling status on the Mediterranean, on the east coast of Spain, was that a lot of supplies and even legitimate boats that were trying to get through to Spain were sunk by Italian submarines uh, who had this role of being combatants, uh, but also uh, sinking, uh, sinking uh, legitimate merchant shipping.
the National Union of Seamen actually brought out a feature film, uh, made a film, which they tried to get into cinemas but was blocked. Uh, we've shown it since. It was on at the DCA a few years ago. Uh, the international, the IBMT uh, got it remastered. And it was a sh it was a film made by the National Union of Seamen and uh, the the sh the the masters uh, union, the shipmasters union, to try and put pressure on the British government because so many British merchant ships were, were either being sunk by being bombed by the German Condor Legion, or were being bombed uh, by or were being sunk by Italian submarines. And this was British seamen killed in their hundreds uh, because uh, they were trying to take legitimate non-military aid to Spain. And that's why we have the memorial in Glasgow, just on the other side of the Jamaica Street Bridge uh, to the Passionaria, which was uh, unveiled a couple of years ago uh, by the RMT to pay tribute to the British merchant seamen who died uh, trying to take material aid uh, to to uh, to Spain. So yeah, the British closed down the chances of the Spaniards, uh, the Spanish Republic, from defending itself by buying planes. Obviously, some did get in. The Soviet planes that were sent were the only ones that really had any chance against the the German and Italian planes that had been brought in on Franco's side. I'm doing some research at the moment on the early groups, handfuls, dozen, dozen maybe two, of British aviators that went out uh, to volunteer to fight uh, in the Spanish airport. And they're basically going up in First World War planes, taking on uh, modern German and Italian fighter planes. They had very little chance until uh, the Soviet planes arrived. And, uh, of course, they dwindled as supplying Spain got more and more difficult. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the the attitude of the British was very much that uh, they didn't care that a democracy was potentially being overthrown, having seen what had happened in Italy, having seen what had happened in Germany, uh, having seen uh, right-wing governments coming to the fore in Hungary, uh, they they very much turned the other eye, turned the turned a blind eye, and uh, advocated appeasement of uh, of Hitler, and let Spain die because a Republican Spain die, because what was the difference and the reason that Franco won was the level and the advanced military technology that they had at their hands. They had German tanks, they had uh, Italian tanks, they had all the material ammunition they needed, they had artillery, uh, they had aeroplanes, bombers and fighters. And it was that sheer weight of technology uh, that uh, that enabled the the fascists to win, and uh, that's the the guilt 
of Britain and the other democracies. I mean, the early brigaders that went across, they went overland by bus through the French border. Uh, initially, to Barcelona was the first stop. After the French closed the borders, every brigader that went to Spain uh, virtually had to climb the Pyrenees and go over go over the mountains on foot, which is what many, many of them did. Uh, many of those from Scotland went over over the Pyrenees, uh, which was tortuous. Uh, the French would stop them uh, and send them back. So, yeah, very sad. And at the end of the day, when the people of Barcelona fled over the French border and the last drabs of the Republican army and even some international brigaders ended up in France. They were herded into great big barbed wire enclosures on the windswept beaches of France uh, with very little sanitation. And uh, many of them died because France not only didn't come to the aid and support a democracy, but it treated the refugees that fled like scum uh, to their eternal dishonour. Of course, after the war, we had international brigaders from Germany who had stood up against Hitler, who had then gone to Spain, fought against Spain. Because they couldn't go back to Germany, they ended up in Britain as refugees. When we started the Second World War, they were rounded up as potential enemy aliens, despite having the very good excuse, so wait a minute, I've been fucking fighting Hitler for the last fucking six years, you bastards. A number of them were huckled into camps. There was one near Preston in Lancashire, and a number of German international brigaders were put on uh, onto ships and sailed over to internment in Canada, of which at least one was torpedoed and sunk by the fucking Germans. Uh, how ironic is that? So, yeah, at least the British battalion, when they came back, they could come back to Britain and they could carry on the fight against fascism. Uh, for some, it was much more difficult. Yeah, cheers for that, Mike. Uh... I think the other next point for the agenda we had was just talking about the solidarity efforts back home. But I think you, you absolutely nailed it there in terms of the blockade runners and you know the the aid that was going going to Spain. Obviously back home, the efforts of uh, food and everything else, especially for the uh, Spanish refugees, was was a massive effort. And uh, you know, with that work being also carried out, not just by. Uh, young communists during, uh, and, and their official channels, but just by ordinary people as well, recognising the, you know, the humanitarian aid that was required, as well as obviously the, the ambulances uh, being run uh, into Spain and, you know, some of the accounts, uh, the personal accounts of people who, who went over to, to Spain to, to, to provide such aid, you know, uh, it's really harrowing when you hear uh, some of the stories of the death and the destruction at the hands of the, of the fascists and uh, you know the accounts of because they were on a humanitarian mission sometimes they were picking up wounded fascist soldiers and take them back to hospitals and you know really real personal accounts of anger uh, as well and even having to treat them and obviously uh, what was captured in a uh, I guess propaganda uh, point of view was you know the the destruction from the bombs and the the horrible 
deaths and injuries of, of countless children. It's uh, certainly uh, images that have been sort of like scarred into me from from really looking into the conflict and you know how it was relayed to the the British public back here. And uh, certainly a, a horrifying image that clearly struck a chord uh, with the workers of Britain to do what they can to to aid the people of Spain. One of the great things that we're always reminded of when we go over to Madrid is the price paid by the civilian population, particularly in 1939, 40, 41, when the mopping up exercise took place of going round towns and villages where the victors would ask people to identify anybody who'd fought in the Republican army any intellectuals, any socialists, any communists, any trade unionists, and many, many thousands were imprisoned. Many, many thousands were taken following the knockador at the dead of night and taken out and shot and buried in ditches. And uh, there's been no accounting for that. Uh, there has absolutely been no accounting for that. Uh when we go to Tarancon for the memorial service for the 39 Scottish brigaders who fell at Harama, there are two memorials of names of the victims in Tarancon of the Franco dictatorship. And they were vandalized at the top of them, on top of each of them, it says victims of the Frankist dictatorship. And these are ceramic plaques. And the Frankist dictatorship was chiselled off uh, in an act of vandalism at the same time as a bucket of red paint was thrown over the memorial to the the, the international brigaders. So, uh, yeah, they paid a heavy price. And after Cambodia, there are more undiscovered mass graves in Spain than any other country in the world. Yeah. I guess when we talk about, you know, the, the aid as well that was uh, being rallied up back home, it's also worth looking uh, again through that political lens to the development and the rise of fascism uh, throughout Britain. Uh, and certainly uh, within the Spanish Civil Wars context, I mean, uh, certainly through the efforts and the apostles of the Catholic Church and drumming up support for Franco, it led to large contention, especially here in Scotland, uh, against the Spanish Republic and most notably uh, Mosley and his fascist thugs uh, growing and touring around the whole of Britain. Uh, so it's just to see if you can give us a, an insight into uh, those two things and you know the implications that that certainly had uh, on the home front here in Britain whilst the, the Spanish Civil War was raging. Well, the black shirts were present in Scotland. I mean, in Motherwell, they had the license to the tennis courts in 1934 in Calder Park. They'd been uh, franchised by the council to the fucking British Union of Fascists. So if you wanted to play a game of tennis in Motherwell in Calder Park in 1934, you actually had to rent the tennis courts from the British Union of Fascists. The black shirts had... They had meeting halls, they had premises, they had premises in Glasgow, at least one. They were very predominant up in Aberdeen because their Gauleiter, their kind of secretary for Scotland, was based, was a member of the aristocracy, uh, 
minor aristocracy based outside Aberdeen, and they put a lot of effort into having demonstrations uh, and having a presence in Aberdeen. Bob Cooney and a number of the Aberdonians who ended up in Spain, none of them went early. There weren't any Aberdonians at, at Harama because the Communist Party had instructed Bob Cooney and the other Aberdeen comrades uh, they had to stay in Aberdeen uh, to fight the to fight the black shirts. If you get a copy of Bob Cooney's book, uh, which was can't remember the title off the top of my head, but his memoir has been published by the Marx Memorial Library. If you go onto the Marx Memorial Library website, it'll certainly be in their uh, merchandise section on their website. But he talks about uh, the the campaign against the black shirts in Aberdeen, and it's absolutely inspiring. Uh, they used to have kids on bikes, folk on trams. The tram drivers would tip them off if the black shirts were assembling, and they would literally drive them off. They would battle them off the castle gate, off the streets, and... Uh, led a wonderful campaign. This was duplicated in other places across Scotland. I was looking for references to the black shirts in Dundee. I found one from uh, Arthur Nicol, who went on to command the anti-tank battery in Spain. But Arthur Nicol talks about driving them out of, the, out of the city square on one occasion, and they never came back. I'm still researching that because that's interesting. They appeared in Perth, and the folk of Perth came on the streets and threw their speaker van into the River Tay. So, yeah, there was inspiring stuff. But the Catholic Church in, in Britain uh, played a major role. I was talking about this about 15 years ago in Dundee. And after I'd spoken, he said, Mike, that explains something to me. That explains something I saw as a small child when the priest came up to the door and chapped on the door. My father opened the door and about 30 seconds later, the priest was lying flat out in the closet after my father decked him. And he said, my father was a Catholic. That's why the priest was at the door. And he said, you were just talking about the Catholic Church going door to door around Dundee, particularly in Lockheed, uh, which was a Catholic area, collecting for Franco. And that would explain it. He said, that was why my father decked the priest in the closet, because the priest had turned up and chapped on the door and asked for money for Franco. But it goes beyond that. I mean, uh, we have correspondence. We've sourced correspondence from between the Labour Party in Dundee and uh, the Labour Party central office in London, with the Labour Party secretary in Dundee explaining that they can't take a firmer stance on Spain in support of the Republicans because of the potential of electoral damage it might cause in Catholic areas of Dundee. They didn't want to upset the Catholic Church, which is an interesting one. And there's other sources, correspondence in the papers. You can read about uh, particularly the Duchess of Athol, who was a Conservative MP in Perth, 
but uh, had identified with the Republicans and was raising money through Spanish aid and through the Basque Children Fund and was uh, often uh, abused in the press in letters. And wouldn't it be better if the Duchess of Athol took in the Basque children refugees that she's calling on folk to fund and looked after them herself and stuff like that. I mean, there was uh, a, there was a councillor in St Andrews who, when they were asked for a licence to allow collections for Basque uh, for the Basque refugee children who were here in the UK, said, uh, "Why would we do that? We all know the trouble that they these kids can cause." Uh, why would we want to support them? Because, again, the British government did nothing to support the 4,000 Basque refugee children that ended up in Britain. They did nothing. All of them were funded. All of them were funded by individuals and organisations who raised it charitably. We've got the Liberal Women's Association in Dundee who contributed to the Basque children, Talk H, who were a charity, a number of fishmongers, uh, three butchers, you know, stuff like that. And these are the people that are on the list of those that contributed uh, to pay for the upkeep of the Basque children. Yeah, spot on, mate. I think it's obviously worth, worth noting that most of the conflict in Spain and the war against fascism was, was beginning there. It certainly efforts back home domestically played a vital role against fascism internationally as well. That certainly can't be can't be disputed. Or, or certainly the actions that come to mind uh, with the likes of Cable Street and as you've mentioned, the, the various brawls and disruptions of fascist organising uh, up here in Scotland was, was instrumental to that. So just to lead on then to, you know, a bit about the International Brigade Memorial Trust. Obviously, we've talked about upholding the legacy the International Brigade, so it's just to see if you can give us a rundown of, you know, what you guys do day-to-day to, to, you know, preserve the the memory of the the International Brigades, and uh, as well as obviously unearthing new information, new accounts, uh, and especially uh, the role of honour. Yeah, we were a charity which sometimes has implications about how political we can be in our pronouncements, so we have to be sometimes careful about that. Uh, because of the rules of charitable organisations. We were formed in 2001. The IBA was the International Brigade Association, uh, which was strictly for brigaders and their families. And it was its home, one of its hallmarks was the discipline with which it was run. Because if, the, if a brigader died, his spouse who would have been able to attend meetings and get-togethers and stuff, was immediately excluded from membership. Uh, They would drop out. So it was decided in 2001 by a number of academic supporters, notably Paul Preston, Richard Baxel is another famous uh, historian of the Spanish Civil War in, in the UK. And a number of supporters, uh, just ordinary folk like ourselves, who were inspired by the legacy. And what was remaining of the IBA decided to form this uh, broad organisation called the International Brigade Memorial Trust. The aims include to 
protect and project the legacy of those that fought in Spain, why they went, why they fought, to encourage folk to research, encourage folk to uh, support local memorials and to have commemorative events regularly at those memorials, but also education. We've been doing a lot of work. It's actually still an element within the higher, or is it the higher still history curriculum in the Scottish curriculum? Uh, the Spanish Civil War appears as an element under a broader topic of appeasement. So it's still effectively on the curriculum up here. Down south, it's not. And there's been a lot of work done in the last couple of years uh, in partnership with, I think it's Leeds University, in actually preparing education packs, source materials to enable teachers to be able to teach the Spanish Civil War uh, to, to kids. So a lot of resources uh, materials which can, anybody can access via the IBMT website. We have ties with other international brigade associations, Abbey in Spain, ASA in uh, in France. Uh, will regularly people will attend their AGMs and they will attend ours, uh, and we meet up in. Uh, international events like the annual uh, Harama commemorations. So uh, the other thing is providing assistance for folk that are researching their own family's links. Uh, so if they've got a name or a rumour in the history of the family that a member of the family went to fight in Spain, we'll help them research that. An interesting one which has only just developed is under the democratic memory legislation that's been passed in Spain. Anybody who had uh, a grandfather or assumedly grandmother who was a nurse or something that was actually in Spain, they can claim, based on their descent, their, their relationship, they can claim Spanish citizenship. And Ian Park, who was on the YCL Scottish Committee with me back in the 80s. Ian has just done that. Ian's uh, grandfather, Alex Park, was killed in Spain. And uh, Ian is just going through the... He's moved to Spain himself just in the last couple of months, but he's actually going through the process of doing the necessary paperwork to enable him to take... Uh, Spanish citizenship. So we can help out in circumstances like that as well. We have an annual commemoration at the national UK-wide. Well, it's UK and Ireland because uh, it's uh, the IBMT covers England, Scotland, Wales and, and Ireland. We have a commemoration at uh, Jubilee Gardens where the large memorial to the International Brigade was unveiled just at the foot of the London Eye in uh, Jubilee Gardens. So there's an event there every July. We have an AGM in October, which is uh, Stockton-on-Tees. It's going to this year. Another place where they had a big fat fight, street fight against the Black Shirts. Uh, but they've got a pub 
which sponsors a basketball team called the Golden Smog Warriors, named after the pub. And the pub has a huge painted mural of Guernica on the outside wall with the names of the international brigaders who went from Stockton. So we're going down to Stockton on Tees in October. Uh, and uh, we do stuff like that. Uh, obviously, uh, we we help out where we can and we keep the role of honour. Um, my mate Alan Lloyd has just taken that over from Richard Baxel. So Alan Lloyd, based in Southampton, a good comrade, Alan has taken on the task of going through the records and refreshing all the uh, the records that we have of the international brigaders. Now, that's, again, an online record that is accessible via the IBMT website. So folk can see... Uh, uh, see stuff there and see whether they can find a relative or we can then research a relative if they're not on the database to see if we can find records we go into the Moscow archives which are online uh, which are basically images of the original international brigade archives that were out in Spain their daily lists uh, their pay books uh, documents uh, of about the brigaders from uh, from the Spanish Civil War, so we can challenge that. There was a wonderful one that's just been posted up on Facebook. There's a place called Vich in VIC in Catalonia. And it's where there was a major hospital, Republican hospital, during the Civil War. And this guy has been trying to find out about his mother, who was a nurse in... Uh, in Spain. And the researchers in Spain have found out that, yes, this woman called Chrissy Wallace, she was a nurse in Spain at Vich. And sadly, she died in a in, in an epidemic. It was a typhoid epidemic and in 1938. And because people knew her, because People were aware of her and people were aware of the job that was done because they didn't just treat the international brigaders. They treated the local community as well. And the local working class and peasant communities in Spain largely didn't have access to health and safe, uh, any sort of health service. So uh, they looked after uh, the, the citizenship as well as... Uh, the, uh, the 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 wounded brigaders and she died in a typhoid epidemic and we've been able in the our friends in Spain have been able to research the fact that potentially the largest funeral service that ever took place in the city of Vich in Catalonia was for the 23 year old Glasgow born nurse who died in 1938 and was nursing the international brigaders and the city turned out in its thousands for the funeral service of this 23 year old glasgow woman uh born in annie's land uh who actually married a jewish doctor who was also with the republican military uh medical service and uh We've been able to pass that on to their family 
or the the son of the two of them who was one year old when his mother died. We've been able to pass that information out to him in Australia. So there's stuff like that, which is really good. Uh, and it's also the fact that folk in Spain are now taking students in Spain, young people in Spain are taking a bigger interest in uh, in what's been happening and the fact that they were never taught. So all these things we're involved with, and it's really fulfilling. In our next commemoration is a week on Saturday at Kakodi, 4th Avenue at 11 o'clock. So uh, there's always a, a good turnout in Kakodi for the Fife Brigaders. People like Huey Sloan, people like Tommy Bloomfield, who was with the Machine Gun Company, uh, captured at Harama. Huey Sloan's remarkable. Uh, he was in the YCL. He came over to Dundee as a YCL organiser and recruited a number of the Dundee Brigaders into the YCL. But Huey Sloan, when he fought in Spain, went under an alias of Hugh Smith. And when they went to put the names on the memorial in Kakodi to the Fife Brigaders, they put down H. Sloan and H. Smith because they didn't know it was the same person. And Huey had to tell them, oh, they're actually both me. But Huey was the man who nearly shot Ernest Hemingway because he was with the anti-tank unit and he was on guard duty. And he noticed these three shady characters poking around the vehicles. And he raised his, he raised his rifle and shouted, who goes there? And his sergeant ran out of the tent and says, oh, wait a minute, Shuey, don't bloody shoot them. We'll see who they are. And one of them was Ernest Hemingway. So Huey Sloan could have been the the, the Fife Brigader who shot Ernest Hemingway. Uh, so, th And the wonderful thing is all these little stories. The, the nurse from Annie's Land, Huey Sloan shooting Hemingway. There's lots of little details. The new book that Liam Turbot's brought out just recently about the three brigaders who were born on the on the islands uh, who all ended up uh, fighting in Spain. Uh, uh, remarkable little stories, little vignettes that, that kind of add the depth to the overall picture. Yeah, spot on, Mike. It's fantastic. And certainly the work that you guys do is, you know, it, it really is out of, that, out, out of this world uh, and really bringing... Uh, the life and the memory uh, of these international brigaders to us all, and like you said, those those wee stories, yeah, they they really are. That gives you that you know that sense of uh, a boosting morale, even in the darkest of times. Reading uh, Willie Maley's book, uh, where he recalls uh, obviously his, his father, uh, and like you said, that fault when they're captured and on the back of that big pickup, and one of the locals running out, obviously sympathetic to Franco, and he's he's carrying a big club and shouting. And, well, one of J Jimmy Maley's pals turned around and goes to him and goes, well, he's a cheery bastard, isn't he? <laughs> they, they small stories that really are sort of like the, the brightness and, you know, the uh, in the dark of, you know, the situation that the international brigaders found themselves quite often just due to the, the conditions. And, you know, as we've said throughout this episode, the fact that they were fighting uh, a trained army uh, and it certainly wasn't any small army with the likes of the backing from Hitler uh, and Mussolini. So yeah, I guess just one of the last points to cover is sort of combating fascism today, you know, as we see it. I think uh, more focusing in Scotland, we're, we're seeing a, a bit of a rise and almost a return to uh, 
the likes of the the BMP of, of when they they paroled the streets. Obviously, most notably uh, at this time being as the fascist demonstrations uh, in Erskine uh, with the Homeland Party, previously in Scotland known as Patriotic Alternative, before their their infighting and their split. Uh, but it's still the same fascist outfit carrying the the same slogans, as well as the likes of the the amateur Highland Division, who we've seen uh, getting battered and chased away by schoolchildren in Lutcall after attempting to push their propaganda. So it's just to see, you know, if you you know what your views are and how we uh, as a movement combat fascism today. Obviously, the the circumstances are a lot different from the thirties and especially the tactics, you know, it's not uh, e- uh, as easy to get away with having a brawl in the middle of a of a busy street in a city centre. It's uh, obviously a lot more surveyed now. So just to see what, what were your what your your thoughts and certainly your message and how we, we combat fascism in today's age. Well, we've seen them. I mean, my, my mind goes back to 1990 in Dundee when the BNP were coming and uh, we had we sent 700 we had 700 people at the railway station uh, because uh, we heard that's how most of them were arriving and because we had 700 people surrounding the railway station in Dundee the police were basically putting them back on the train saying no you're not getting off here uh, there were many buses of them which people were identifying and uh, in Union Street, there was uh, one of the minibuses was surrounded and uh, attempted to overturn it, but didn't quite succeed. But they were actually meeting in a pub, and it's a pub about 100 yards down the hill from me. It's my local, which has since been demolished and replaced by three very plush blocks of hisses. Uh, but it was the Jimmy Shand, and they booked themselves in under the name of the Sunwheel Book Club. So we found that the fact somebody spotted them up here and the 700 people who were celebrating having seen off the fascists uh, were either encamped around the police station demanding that the police release our folk who they'd lifted as part of everything that was going on and the rest of us were having a pint in the Trades Council Clubby, uh, which was about two minutes' walk from the police station. And then we got the word, they're up at the Jimmy Shan, which really annoyed me because that's my local pub. So everybody jumped onto whatever possible form of uh, transport they could. And we surrounded the Shan and try to remember who the, the big boy was at the time. It wasn't a Webster. But anyway, he was... They were thrown out of the pub as soon as it became aware that who these guys were. And they ended up having an open air meeting in the, in the car park, which was drowned out. And then they all piled onto, I remember this vividly because it was about five feet away, onto a Strathclyde region double-decker bus uh, driven by an Asian bus driver, which had obviously been booked uh, and brought them through. And the bus from which the windows all disappeared within about 30 seconds. And uh, that was my first memory of them. Then around 2004, they said they were coming to Dundee. And this was the Scottish Defence League. And they came to Dundee four years running. And each year we organised a counter-activity in the city square called Dundee Together. Uh, which involved 
artistic, face painting, all the different communities, dance communities, uh, having a show of public togetherness uh, as a counterpoint to their activities. So they were moved up bits in quiet bits of shopping centre, which was soon surrounded, uh, and they got bussed out. It was normally about half a dozen locals supplemented by a bus, uh, maybe a bus and a minibus, which had come up from Sunderland. Uh, these are the people we called the blatant racists who'd come up from the northeast of England. They were the northeast something. And they turned up four times that they came to Dundee, and they were also there at Perth when they had uh, the event at Perth recently. They pick on to something. In Perth, it was the building of a new mosque. And the fascists were turning up in solidarity with the locals who had complained about possible car parking issues associated with the new mosque. They were in Alloa. Uh, and the issue in Alloa was the housing of asylum seekers was causing uh, service veterans to sleep on the streets. Obviously, the most recent ones are associated with refugees in hotels. That's Erskine and Elgin. Luckily, in Dumfries, we've got ahead of the game. The Trades Council in Dumfries and Galloway has identified that there are refugees in a hotel outside Dumfries. And they've actually jumped the gun by bringing together community organisations They've been contacting sports clubs and asking, can you give these guys uh, a game of five-a-side or a game of tennis or something like that? They've been meeting with uh, civic organisations and basically trying to prevent what happened at Erskine, which was the fascists got in and said, oh, these people are convicted rapists, uh, these people are this, these people are that and immediately turning the population, trying to turn the population against them. They've been there for months now at Erskine, turning up on a Sunday. It's the same story as a bunch of seven or eight, uh, but they're outnumbered, and we now have locals uh, in Erskine who are doing work uh, with, the, with the refugees, making them welcome, bringing them supplies, uh, bringing them food, bringing them toiletries, stuff like that. And a lot of that was part of uh, what we managed to do at Elgin and what we've managed to do at uh, Dumfries, which is circulate leaflets, explaining what's happening, letting the public know uh, that why the fascists were there, why the people needed solidarity. So it's actually working in the communities uh, to try and head off any preemptory attack politically that the fascists can make to turn the local community against the refugees. Because what happens generally is we find that once they know who the people are in the hotels, the animosity disappears. Uh, there's uh, maybe not a massive outswelling of sympathy and uh, solidarity, but at least that initial mistrust and potential for 
hatred and alienation uh, can be headed off, which is an important starting point because it stops the fascists being able to build in any meaningful way in these in these areas. Occasionally, and I can't say this as a representative of the IBMT, uh, there are requirements for more direct forms of action uh, when that circumstance presents itself. But education is the ground base, and it's certainly something that the IBMT would identify with as part of the legacy of the International Brigades, is that continuing to educate people against fascism, of what fascism does, how it operates, how it tries to divide and isolate people the same way as it did with the black shirts back in the 30s. And we know they'll get supported by the polis and protected by the polis. One of the scenes that shook me, well, didn't shake me, but historically, one of the scenes leading up to Cable Street was that mounted police charged and tore down the British Legion banner of the Jewish Ex-Servicemen's Association, which was being paraded at Cable Street. And you teared the, when the police teared down the banner of an establishment organisation like the British Legion in their thirst to defend fascists, it's an indication of eternal vigilance because the i mean the labor movement isn't extensive as it was i mean we don't have you couldn't say maybe like you can previously that there's a trade unionist or a labor party member or a left drinking in every pub in dundee or every pub in glasgow so there is potential for little groups to go around do paper sales, leaflet, stir things up without appearing on our radar. Again, this takes back to the point in Aberdeen where they used to have folk that would tip you off, kids on bikes, tram drivers, that network in the community of being able to quickly respond when these bastards uh, first rear their head. But eternal vigilance, internal education is what we have to do and continue to have to do because uh, we see what's happening. A very, very brave organisations uh, doing stuff down on the south coast of England where it's hardest to do some of this work because of the nature. Bridgewater Trades Council organising down at uh, Portland uh, where the big, the big floating cell has appeared. And the labor movement will be there. Uh, it's usually trades councils, trades councils in Erskine, trades, Mori Trades Council up in Elgin, Bridgewater Trades Council down at Portland. It's very often trades councils that are part of this fight back and organization. Uh, so they're very important. It's also trades councils that are generally at the, at the core of... Uh, local organizations uh, and local groupings that keep the memory of the international brigades alive. Obviously, other organizations do as well, but I always have a word for trades councils uh, because uh, of my involvement with them. Yeah, spot on, mate. 
especially on the points of ed- education. You know, it's all well doing the work that we're doing, but if we're not educating the new generation on the dangers of fascism and you know how we tackle you know the e- economic complexities that lead to its rise, then uh, all of our efforts are essentially just in vain. So yeah, you're absolutely spot on. So. Yeah, just to round, round off and finish the episode then, just for any uh, last talking points, but most importantly, where can we find the International Brigade Memorial Trust on social media and online and that? Uh, IBMT, if you go Google IBMT, you'll come up with the IBMT website. There's an International Brigade's Facebook page, which is basically the official Facebook page of the IBMT. There's also a very important one called International Brigade's Remembered, on Facebook, which is the main UK uh, one. Uh, The one I moderate is Scotland and the Spanish Civil War, which obviously has a focus in Scotland. Uh, Facebook in in Ireland, it's Phoebe, Friends of the International Brigade Ireland, Phoebe. They have a very active Facebook page and they have a lot of commemorations in Ireland. They seem to have a tradition of having individual memorials to the individual brigaders where they lived. And so uh, because they do it that way rather than a national memorial or a grouped memorial, they very frequently will have uh, have events on their annual calendar of uh, of stuff they're doing. And uh, they're, they're very good as well. So, yeah, uh, people are more than happy. I'd, I'd, be, I'd encourage people to be... Uh, going to the IBMT website and taking out a membership, l- looking on the the merchandise page to to buy stuff, t-shirts, uh, mugs, stuff like that, and also to tap into the stuff I was speaking about, uh, the role of honour, the educational resources, all that kind of stuff that folk can find there, uh, based on the international brigades. Yeah, super, Mike. I'll be sure to include all that in the in the description as well as obviously the direct links to the International Brigade Memorial Trust and the most importantly the role of honour. So yeah, just wanted to say thanks, Mike, for for all your time and taking the time at your schedule just to come on and and cover this. I thought it was quite a an appropriate episode to do, given you know the political scene in in Scotland and now uh, and throughout Britain. Uh, especially on the treatment uh, against asylum seekers and that. So, yeah, just thank you yep. for your time. And it's It's been an absolute pleasure to interview you. No problem. Anytime. Thank you, comrades, for tuning in to another episode of Spectre. As usual, be sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening in on. And, of course, share us on social media with your friends, family, co-workers and comrades. It's vital that we take the lessons learned from the Spanish Civil War and continue our fight against fascism in the modern era. Although our fight doesn't replicate the same actions or tactics used during the 30s, it's up to us to find out what actions and tactics we must use in order to combat fascism. Education will be a vital tool in this. As mentioned, any work that we do in combating fascism in our communities will be null and void if education of the youth is neglected. Mass campaigning in local communities to address the real economic issues that fascists use in order to split communities has to be addressed. We have to give locals the power and the tools necessary to elevate their communities from poverty. When communities are no longer divided and are established on a collective goal, then fascists cease to be able to gain power in these communities. 
Direct action is also a tool, and this is a tool used by anti-fascist networks throughout Britain. And in Scotland, there are anti-fascist networks working behind the scenes to ensure direct action can be carried out and to limit the organisational capacity and actions of fascists throughout the nation. Our forefathers and mothers had a call in Spain when they were fighting a fascist army with the bankrolling of the bourgeoisie. Their call remained true. No passeran, they shall not pass. And ten years before I saw the light of morn, a comet ship of heroes was laid. From every corner of the world came sailing to 15th International Brigade. They came to stand beside the Spanish people. The train stem, the rising fascist time. Franco's allies were the powerful and wealthy. Frank Ryan's men came from the other side. Even the olives were bleeding. As the battle farm that they read it on the rock. Truth and love against the force of evil. Brotherhood against the fascist love. Viva la quinta brigada. No pass around the pledge that made him fun. Adelante is the crier on the hillside. Let us remember that.